I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. In the woods today, L.A. discovered a charming little landmark. The Pet Cemetery. The master himself, writer Stephen King, has said Pet Cemetery is, quote, a scary movie. Be warned. The film explores grief, emotion, guilt, and love. You could say it's a family film in a terrifying, don't bring the little ones kind of way. I was joined by one of Pet Cemetery's stars, actress and filmmaker Amy Simons, who talks about elevating a horror picture to an art film, creating female characters not typically seen on screen, and finding your own people in the indie film world. Then, for fans of iconic Broadway and the movie musical, we have your number. I talked to Andy Blankenbuehler, the choreographer of Hamilton, who also choreographed Fosse Verdon the new FX miniseries that chronicles the creative and romantic partnership between Bob Fosse and Gwen Burden. Let's listen in. It might seem scary, but it's not. Perfectly natural. Just like dying is natural. The whole town's been using this place for generations. Folks make a kind of ritual out of it. For LA Times Studios and The Real, and I'm here with Amy Simitz, Actress, writer, director, producer, editor. Now you play Rachel Creed in Pet Cemetery, and this is your first lead role in a studio feature film. What does that mean to you? It's honestly very surreal. It's starting to sink in just because I'm having to talk so much about it. <laughs> I'm so used to being popping on and playing like supporting characters or being exposition girl. I like doing that because it affords me time to write and direct. And now being the lead of like a studio film, I guess the thing that I'm realizing right now is you just have to talk about the film a lot. <laughs> like <laughs> My press schedule. I didn't have to do that before. I just go in, out, and then like, it's like the movie never happened for me. And now is this something you ever even would have imagined for yourself? I mean, especially given not just your sort of roots and like a sort of a DIY indie filmmaking scene, but the fact that you've been moving back and forth between acting and your work behind the camera, like being sort of like a studio film actress, is that something you would have even thought for yourself? No, not at all. I'm constantly surprised in whenever I'm acting in anything that they're casting me to begin with, just because I sort of accidentally am an actor. It wasn't my main priority. But also what's interesting, it didn't feel weird because the guys who were directing it, Dennis and Kevin, also came from the indie world. And most of the stuff that I've done in film is growing up with all the filmmakers that were making films around me while I was making films and I'd act in their movies and then they'd get bigger budgets and bigger budgets. So it didn't feel like a giant leap because Dennis and Kevin come from the same indie world, you know. And are you finding that balance hard to keep? Like the between whatever kind of acting career you're having, and then your work as a writer and director? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I'm learning this year how to be better at time management. I Certainly in the past, it's just been like whenever I feel like writing to sit down and, and write. But now I have to make sure that I carve out time to do that. Like I have to preserve time to do that. 
So, and writing and directing takes a lot of time. So I can't constantly take on acting work just because you have to sit your ass down and, and write or else you're not a writer. <laughs> so, yeah. And now what's the distinction for you as far as like what you get from those two different things? Like what is the different creative satisfaction between acting and writing and directing? I feel a lot more ownership over writing and directing. I feel like it definitely feels more mine. And when I'm performing, it's all about serving the story itself or what the director's vision is. So it it doesn't take as much space up in my brain as writing and directing does. But There's almost a compulsive component to writing and directing where you're just constantly thinking about it all the time. But with acting, it's less stressful for me because I can go in, somebody tells me where to stand, what to say, and I just throw emotion at it and perform it. And then I can go home and go to sleep. Um, Whereas with writing and directing, I sort of keep myself up at night because it's all on my shoulders. When I'm acting, I feel like a spy on set and I kind of steal methods that I think are useful or like notice things that aren't useful like when I'm getting directed. I also spy just on a tech level because most of the stuff that I go on act in has a bigger budget than I do, so they have really cool toys. (laughs) And I get to learn what they do. And all of those things as well, acting, writing, and directing, also sort of informs the way that I produce stuff, either for myself or other people. I just become a better producer the more I know about film in general or any position on set. And can you kind of put your finger on some of the things that you specifically glean from those bigger productions. I've always been fascinated by the idea of you starring in Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant. I always pictured you sneaking around the set, looking at stuff, learning things like you were saying, like equipment and things they have and maybe how he works. Like what's something you feel like you learn from watching someone like Ridley Scott that you can take scale down to the work that you do? Obviously the crew is huge. They have such a huge support system And that was interesting to me is to watch how to efficiently use a giant crew. I love the nimbleness of shooting with like a total of seven or eight people, including the actors on set. And I love how nimble that is. And everyone is doing a job or multiple jobs. But prior to doing larger budget stuff and then seeing Alien, I was like, I don't think I'd ever like to do a giant movie like that. It seems unwieldy. But he runs his crew so efficiently that it was really amazing i would sit at dit and watch them do live edits of what we had just shot and plugging in sort of a rogue version of special effects to see if the shots were working and just watching that and seeing what is available with all of that technology and all of that crew really inspired me to be like oh you can as long as you are running your crew in an efficient manner and you see it as this whole machine and ridley is so good at those giant movies no one's really sitting around. And also he's famous for shooting nine to five and he has cameras everywhere. And so to see that was really inspiring for me is like in thinking about it in my brain and understanding how I could use a bigger crew. But then on something like Pet Cemetery, for example, is it ever a challenge for you to turn off your filmmaker brain, like to just be acting while you're on set? Sometimes I can never quite completely turn it off just because of coming from the independent world where I am acting for filmmakers who are my peers. Part of what we were doing, like with Joe Swamberger, Adam Wingard, or Ty West, is all of us respected each other as filmmakers as well as actors. 
So there is a dialogue of directors on set, but you always default to who's directing that film. The only time that I, I have trouble turning it off is if I see something inefficient and I see a better way. It's like a video game for me where I see something happening that's like not efficient and they can cover it like much quicker. Then I'll say something. <laughs> but my job is to just in this movie cry and be devastated and scream. I have to say, I found Pet Cemetery much more emotional than I expected it to be. I mean, it is a very scary and suspenseful horror film, but it also, I heard you joke and call it a family film. I mean, it is this very gripping and emotional story about a family and grief. And do you feel like that's something you were able to really bring to it? Do you think you helped sort of elevate that aspect of it? That was the discussions that we we all had early on. I mean, that's in the book already. The book itself is like primarily for the first half, at least, is just this portrait of a marriage and this man and this inner dialogue of Lewis Creed and his feelings about his wife and his children and work and moving his family to the country or away from the city. It is a family drama. And that family drama is what makes when Gage in the book dies and Ellie in the movie, that's what makes it so tragic and so relatable and then so disturbing is that you did spend time with this family, this normal family, and then you understand what they lost. You feel like you've lived with this family and you're more attached to the idea that they just lost their child. And of course, you're going to bring Gage back or Ellie back. And I think that that's part of what makes it so horrific in the book and then also in the film. And here's a clip of the film when Ellie comes back. What's going on? I wasn't ready to say goodbye to her. You're scaring me. Just tell me what you're talking about. It's my fault she died. I had to bring her back. There's a place rage deep in the woods. Beyond the pet cemetery. It brings things back. Are you happy, Mommy? I know you were a fan of the book. I quite love the fact that you began reading Stephen King at sort of a perilously young age. Really young. I was just talking about this actually on the Stephen King podcast. And we were talking about what is it about being young and being so attracted to horror genre or like scary things. I loved scary stories like R.L. Stein, Christopher Pike, and, and then Stephen King, of course. And I realized that it's because I read of him when I was eight. My parents were very excited that I was reading, so they encouraged it. But I think what it is is that you're so attracted to it because anything's possible in your brain. So ghosts are possible. Zombies are possible. So I think that that's why kids are sort of like fascinated by horror, or at least why I was, is it's like anything's sort of possible. But Stephen King's work is incredibly adult, I will say that. And now in making the movie, did you get a chance to actually meet Stephen King? I haven't met him yet, no. I don't get too fangirly, but I feel like I would have a hard time not fangirling out to Stephen King. But I did meet John Lithgow, and I love John Lithgow. John Lithgow, who plays the neighbor in Pet Cemetery, a role that was also played by Fred Gwynn in the earlier version of Pet Cemetery. He's the sweetest, and he's my friend now. Every time his name comes up, I just start <laughs> doing it. Um, I just start beaming. <laughs> He came to barbecues at my house when we were shooting. It was really lovely. (laughs) 
the movie makes some pretty key changes to King's story. Were there conversations about like, is that allowed? Like, should we be doing this? Well, as the actor, I'm, it wasn't my job to figure out if we were allowed. But I, though we talked about it before and I thought it was really smart what uh, Jeff, the writer and the guys were talking about as to why they made the change that it's Ellie. She's at the age that she is in the film. She's already dealing with her existence and the questions of death and the questions of what is death. Whereas, you know, when you're dealing with a toddler, they don't understand the con. They're not thinking about anything, but they're the center of the universe. They don't even understand the concept of death. And so it's an interesting twist. It gives it new space to expand. How do you talk about death with your kid when they're questioning it? As an actress, you always just have this sort of rawness to what you're doing. And it's just very like emotionally vivid. Is that a difficult headspace to like stay in? Like making a movie like Pet Cemetery and the fact that you're dealing so much with grief and guilt and these really intense feelings. Do you carry that stuff around with you like while you're shooting the movie? I mean, I carry that stuff around with me as a human being. <laughs> I've just lost so many people that are close to me. You know, my I took care of my dad. Jeez. Now it's been seven years since he passed away. But you can tell right then that I can't believe it's seven years. It just feels so present all the time. You never forget losing somebody. You just learn how to deal with the pain. <laughs> I'm laughing. It's not funny. But uh, you can't be a crumpled mess. But it's always there. It's always a nerve to like access. So for me, it's quite cathartic to get up there and actually exercise some of that existential terror. The movie, it works so well just like as a horror movie. And I know you like horror novels. Are you a fan of horror movies too? I'm not really big into torture porn, but I love genre movies because you can get away with such strange tone and such strange characters and really unbelievable circumstances. And the audience is so ready and willing to go with you into like a what if situation. It's almost like the audience is giving you permission to make a giant art film. You get to make monsters and talk about the id of like of human beings and make these very strange leaps of reality and you can go into these surreal territories, but the audience is there with you and like wants it to happen. And then so much of what you've directed up till now, I'm thinking of Sun Don't Shine or, or your work on The Girlfriend Experience, has been rooted in more of like a sort of a naturalism. Like it's interesting to think of you then making a your own horror movie. Like I can't wait to see what that's going to look like. Everyone goes back to this movie, but I was rewatching The Shining and that's very naturalistic. Even in the horror stuff that he's shooting, it's just images. He's not doing anything to the images. It's like the blood and and even the twins. It's all in camera lenses to like make you feel like trickery, but essentially at the core of it is just this story about an abusive husband with anger management problems. Everyone remembers it as like super haunting and they talk about the symbolism and all that. And I was just like so struck at how simple the story was. It really inspired me to sort of attack horror in the same way and just make the central piece really simple and just about human emotion and this very simple storyline follow that and allow it to tumble out of control in a psychological way, but still keep it very grounded, which I think they did a good job in Pet Cemetery. Yes. You always are rooting for the family in the movie, even as the family becomes this Baroque, Guggenau, weird thing. 
Lewis very slowly gets to understand what the burial ground does because Church dies and then Judd explains it to him. Then Judd takes him there and then they bear the cat and the cat comes back and he sees the cat. So when Ellie dies, he knows that there's this place and he's like, of course, I'm going to go bury her there. So he's had all this time to process that there is this place. When I see my daughter in the kitchen, I haven't had any of that time to like process what's happened. But at the same time, I think that if the roles were flipped, I feel like Rachel would have done the same thing. I don't know any parent that wouldn't bury their kid to come back, you know. As an actress, it's interesting to me, like, I feel like at first you were getting a lot of sister roles, and then you kind of moved into aunt roles, and now you've got mom roles. And to me, it seems like it only, what it says more than anything, is like how limiting the roles available to women are. How do you feel about like just what's available to you as an actress? Things are getting better. You definitely read a lot of scripts where it's just like the function of this character is the wife. The function of this character is the mom, as opposed to doing anything. Very few times you get a script where the function of this character is the scientist. (laughs) I do think that you can still bring life into a mother. Because my mom's a mom and she was a wife at some point, but she's incredibly complex. So just like not trying to approach everything for myself is approach it in a way where it's even though it's this part that I can make it incredibly emotionally complicated in some way. But do you feel like that's also some of the impulse why you started writing and maybe wanting to create roles of your own? You weren't going to get certain kinds of parts so you had to go out and create them for yourself. I don't really like acting for myself. I did it early on because I was cheap, meaning free. And I also was still learning how to direct. And a lot of my early work is was really strange. And so I found it hard to explain it to another person to get them to do what I wanted. Because I was young and didn't really understand how to direct. So I would just act in them. And that's really how I became an actor, by acting in my own stuff. I do tend to write women that I don't see in film, or I'd like to see in film. But it's not for me. It's for, I guess, the world to watch all these crazy women that I make. <laughs> I like women that are on the spectrum, that like you question sort of their motives. Because I do think it's important for women to show this darker side of women, to have this existential crisis that plays out in maybe not so sweet or mom or maternal ways. Because I think a lot of times we put this pressure on women to be the perfect mom or be the perfect wife or be the perfect lover or be all of them all in one and be perfect, that I think it actually is important to show that women have this inner, whether it's violence or manipulation or whatever, is to show that there's an inner life to these women as opposed to just thinking, are my kids okay? Is my husband happy? Am I pleasing him in bed? I think it's really important for me as a writer and director to show these off-the-wall women. And now you, right now, are moving so easily between the work that you're doing in movies and then also the work you've been doing on TV. Like, are those Does two- it look easy? <laughs> well, tell me about that. I mean, do they are they two totally different forms to you? Is it something you feel like you can switch between? TV's changed so much. You just have to think about the arc in a different way. But I'm not an expert yet. I'm still, like, learning myself because the formats just keep changing. So... I'm just excited that it keeps changing and I get to change with it and try to keep up with it. That's the fun part to me is that no one can really put their finger on anything. So anything's possible right now. 
TV and movies are sort of blending in the way that we watch everything, even in the format that we're watching them and, or the format that they come in and some of these stations and platforms allowing people to do hour and a half episodes or 20 minute episodes and just breaking the format so much. It's sort of, it's exciting. The rules are kind of out the window. So you feel energized by that more than intimidated by it? Yeah, I'm not a purist. I mean, yes, I have like the artist in me loves going and seeing a 35 millimeter print in the theater with original sound and like hearing all that or going with crowds to a theater. But I'm just excited that I get to write stories and people will watch them, period. And however that happens, whether it's a horror movie or a television show or a webisode thing, doesn't matter to me. The two seasons that you did of The Girlfriend Experience seemed like such an undertaking. Like it seemed like a really large and intense project to be taking on. What do you think you learned from that? Do you feel like you grew as a filmmaker, just as even as a producer? Like what do you think you took from that project? Definitely as a producer. I mean, I know way more than I should about tax credits. (laughs) And I also fell in love with, like, I really like producing. I actually really like doing it because it is a puzzle piece and it is important to understand producing in order to get creative freedom as a director because nobody can tell you what to do once you have all that knowledge. One of the things that I see happen a lot with like creatives is they get just steamrolled because somebody comes in and tells them like, well, we can't do it that way because X, Y, Z, union. And then if you know all the union rules and you know all the tax rebate things and you know how to build a budget and you know how to shift money around and you know hours and rates and child labor laws and how to break down a script, then like nobody can tell you what to do. I mean, obviously people can tell you that's really expensive, Amy. But even then you can go, no, because I know how to shift this number here because that's going to be really cheap and I can tell you what it's going to be. Yes, we're like, we're spending money on these lenses and they're really expensive, but that's going to help us because it's going to give us texture and therefore we don't have to paint the walls this way. I mean, let's be honest, my show was in terms of television, not super expensive, but it was a lot of money to me. Learning all that, was so important for me to grow as an artist because it's been incredibly empowering to know all of those aspects. The things that I never wanted to learn as a creative now become extremely helpful for me as a creative. Then just the last thing I want to ask you is kind of for you as someone who came up out of the kind of low budget DIY film scene, even some people that sort of were your colleagues there. I mean, I'm thinking of Barry Jenkins and Dale Romansky. I mean, they have gone on to make movies that have won Oscars. And when you were starting out for yourself, would you ever even have imagined that the work you were doing could reach the stage that it has? I should say, I'm sitting in a room most of the day writing. So I'm not interacting or going to events being like, look, I'm wearing Louis Vuitton. I go to the premiere and then I come back to my computer and then I direct stuff. I'm a little loopy on that. But watching Barry win the Academy Award... Because we all made films in the way that we did for like $10,000, $30,000 and just kept working our way up, it still just blows my mind. And it blows Barry's mind. That's what you're doing. Does anyone ever quite understand how they got to where they were? I'm just not an entitled person. But it seems like such a rare example of a, a moment when the good guys won and in so many ways like hard work paid off and it felt like the culmination of something that was just really exciting. And I think to see all of you be as active as you are and to have the careers now that you all do, to me, as someone who's been watching all of you for a while, coming from the like the film festival scene, it's just great. It just feels really exciting. 
Yeah. I mean, it does feel like the good guys one, but there's every generation sort of has that group. And Soderbergh talked about it too, because it was him and Spike Lee. They were like of the same sort of group of filmmakers that were all coming up together and they worked really hard and they were super scrappy. And that's why you see those guys championing like people like me or Barry because they know what it is or like the link letters or they are such massive supporters of each wave that comes through because all of us have something in common, which is very early on, you don't make any money. So you feel really delusional. And so when you find your people, you just keep making it with the other delusional people. (laughs) And so then when it finally works out and you want to like foster that for like a younger generation. Well, great. Well, Amy Simons, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. If you've done something, Lewis, it's not too late to undo it. (sighs) And now we'll take a break and I'll be right back to talk Fosse Verde. HBO's Barry is back and ready for a killer second act. Starring Emmy winners Bill Hader and Henry Winkler, season two of Barry follows the charming yet complicated hitman-turned-actor as he grapples with his past and seeks his place in the spotlight. Bolstered by a hilarious acting class of misfits and some new criminal miscreants, season two is filled with laughter, suspense, and quirky charm. Don't miss season two of Barry, Sundays at 10 p.m. only on HBO. Cabaret, Chicago, Pippin, Sweet Charity, Damn Yankees, All That Jazz. Bob Fosse's legendary work on stage and screen is well-known even to casual fans of theater and film. Less well-known is Gwen Verdon, his wife and collaborator, who was herself a queen of Broadway. The new special series, Fosse Verdon, charts their romantic and creative partnership. I'm joined by Andy Blankenbuehler, who's Broadway royalty himself, after his choreography for shows including Hamilton, In the Heights, 9 to 5, and The Revival of Cats. On next week's episode, I'll talk to Fosse Verdon's Stephen Levinson, who is an executive producer and writer on the series. Levinson himself is the Tony-winning book writer of Dear Evan Hansen. Again. Andy, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. So glad I could be here today. For you, going into this project... What did the name Bob Fosse mean to you? Is he someone whose work had already been an influence on you? Yeah, Bob Fosse's work and his inspiration has been huge for me. I grew up as a big fan of the movie musical. So without knowing it, I watched Bob do a lot of musicals like Kiss Me Kate, his amazing solo and duet. And from this moment on, Steam Heat, Sweet Charity, Mine Hair, the cabaret film, those things really made a big impression on me as a young dancer, as an aspiring Broadway dancer. And then in the middle of my Broadway performing career, I was very lucky to be in the original Broadway cast of the musical Fosse. So for a couple years of my life, it was kind of like going to college and postgraduate school and studying one of the biggest legends there is. I'm a huge fan of Jerome Robbins, who's another iconic Broadway choreographer, and Bob Fosse. And so that time in my life was great because... A, it was amazing to dance that work, but B, it really was like a course in choreography and directing and design. And so I walked away from that show just hugely impacted. And now for people who maybe aren't as familiar with Fosse's work, can you describe a little bit about what it is that makes it special for you? 
Yeah, I mean, Bob's career was so diverse and it continued to change constantly. Early on, like in the 50s, you know, he was a song and dance guy. He wanted to be Fred Astaire. So when he went to the movie musical, his dancing was robust. It was energetic, it was aspirational. He would fly through the air in a way that was just, he was in love with life. He didn't get to become Fred Astaire. And that was fortunate for all of us because by him having to reroute his career, he went further and further into dance, into choreography, then into directing and writing. His choreography style changed over the years because I think in his own life, he was dealing with a lot of personal issues, dysfunctions, neuroses that he then processed through his work. And so he was attracted to subject matter and characters that had broken elements to them. So his choreography went from sort of a robust openness to more of a closed picture. He danced parallel, he danced turned in, which means that you stand pigeon toed as opposed to like a ballet dancer. He was losing his hair and so he started dancing with a bowler hat all the time. And so his characters got darker. He was attracted to the world of the nightlife, the girls in Big Spender, the burlesque kind of an energy. And so he analyzed dark pictures and then choreographically those shapes got more and more broken. So that mix of razzmatazz showbiz mixed with sort of a dark, darker view went into so many different parts of entertainment. He was imitated so far and wide, even down to like a Beyonce video that mimics his movement. He entered the culture of the theater and film in ways that people didn't know. Like people don't know the name Bob Fosse, but then they recognize choreographic shapes. They recognize the way somebody dances with a hat or the way they splay their hands open in a jazz hand. And those were the things that Bob Fosse brought to us. And then the way that his work could be combined so many different styles. Do you feel like that's something that you've brought into your own work, for example, in your work on Hamilton? Yeah, I am very open about being inspired by people. Like I was hugely impacted as a teenager by Gene Kelly on, on films, by Fred Astaire, by Michael Jackson. I mean, Smooth Criminal changed my world. And so those things make an imprint on you and you aspire to the bar that those great artists have set. Fosse's work did that for me. So when I did a piece like Hamilton, which draws on lots of different styles, something like Rumor It Happens has all kinds of Fosse elements to it. That's probably, in musical terms, the most Fosse-esque piece of music. And so it called on those instincts from me. Fosse's work itself, I think he dealt with diverse characters and diverse situations, but he was iconic because he created a style that he kind of stuck to. Some choreographers are chameleons. I think I'm a bit more like a chameleon where if I'm in the 1940s and it's about a serviceman, I want everything to look like that. Or if it's contemporary in the Heights on the street in Manhattan, I want it to look like that. Fosse took his imprint and put it on everything he did. And it takes a rare creative artist to do that. So in that way, he created really astounding characters, but also accomplished a lot in actually duplicating his style. And now the show, of course, is called Fosse Verdon. It deals very much also with the life and work of Gwen Verdon. And for you, was she someone that you knew of? Like, is she spoken of in sort of like the contemporary theater world in the same way that Bob Fosse is? I mean, there's a constant need for re-education. People are inspired by a craft and they move to New York City or they move to London or L.A. to be in the entertainment industry and, and they don't know all the names. Then they know people's impact, but they might not even know who they were and then they learn about them. So there's always a continuing education, but I came up really knowing 
Gwen Verdon and knowing her work on film and on stage. And my very first day working in the workshop situation of the show Fosse that I did on Broadway is when I met Gwen Verdon and she took me by the hand in a way that no one had done since like a dance teacher when I was like eight years old. She took me by the hand and taught me the dance step, talked it into my ear standing next to me as we both looked into the mirror and it bowled me over. I was meeting this Broadway legend, but she walked across the room to help me. And that was a very moving thing for me. And so I got to know her during that show, during Fosse. She was around, as was her daughter, to oversee the work. And she was really impressive. She was really generous and carried herself with such grace, but was containing so much information. And I think the truth of the TV series is that Stephen Levinson, everybody who worked on it, wisely knew that this wasn't a show about one person. This was a show about how a partnership can go through good times, hard times, but that that partnership is both magical and completely necessary and vital. And so Gwen changed Bob's life as Bob changed Gwen's life. Also, in that way, the show, the TV series, becomes about how the work revolved around their ins and outs. So it's not a show about the work. It's a show about two dynamic people and how they negotiated life, how they negotiated their relationship, how they negotiated their pasts, which was a major point to Bob's work and Gwen's work too, but especially Bob in that he constantly used the things he was battling from his youth, from his earlier life in his work therapeutically. And now this puts you in something of a rare position, having known Gwen Verdon yourself. What was it like for you then seeing Michelle Williams playing her for the show? First of all, A, number one, Sam and Michelle are extraordinary performers, actors, and they dig in in such levels and such complexity. Their skill set, their toolbox is so intense that they're perfectly suited to dig into the complexities of these two characters. Michelle and Sam helped to remind us that we were telling a story about people. And so every step of the way, we had to take the integrity of the environment very seriously. But then we had the ability to trust these extraordinary actors to play in that sandbox. And so we were able to then say something like Big Spender, for example, or Who's Got the Pain. We brought in Fosse specialists to partner with us to not only help teach the dance steps, but to teach the backbone of the ideas, the inspirational words that Bob would say or Gwen would say to help the actors find their way to recreate the scenarios like the paint peeling off the dance studio walls, all those things that Tommy and the rest of the team so beautifully recreated helped set a world for Sam and Michelle. That's Thomas Kiel, executive producer and director on Fosse Verdon. I think in art, it's a great thing when you can rely on the integrity of a moment, when a moment actually really happened. Like Hamilton's that way. Like Washington really said certain things and did certain things around Alexander Hamilton. We can then riff off of that, jump into it, and bend the rules a little bit. Fosse Verdon is similar to that. We know their partnerships. We know the work they made. And so then we took liberties and we had fun with what these characters may have done in that situation. There's a scene very early in the first episode of the series where we see Fosse and Verdon on set of the shoot of the film version of Sweet Charity doing the Hey Big Spender number. And is that a challenge for you, a scene like that, and that you're having to recreate the choreography as we know it, but then also kind of break it up so we get this kind of process version of it? Is a scene like that difficult for you? 
know, you put your finger right on actually what made it not difficult. Like if our job was to bring Big Spender to life in a way that felt brand new and felt like it was being born in that moment, that would have been hard because we're not Bob Fosse. We weren't there. But we have the benefit of being able to lean into Bob's work and look at the lighting design, look at the costume design, look at the postures and the geometry of the choreography. It's all so sculptural and so beautiful that then you can take the pieces apart. And then when you take the pieces apart, you can investigate process. Why did Bob choose that camera angle? Why is the spacing that way? Like in the scene you're referring to, like he cuts two dancers. And by cutting two dancers who are already in costume, who are ready to go, he makes the picture better. And in cutting those two dancers... It also demonstrates how heartbroken it makes him feel and how Gwen deals with it because she knows it has to be done for the work. And so the characters are more deeply fleshed out because of that situation. The theater aficionado gets to go behind the scenes and see what happened. And then the layperson gets to experience this tremendous movie musical number in a way that feels brand new. So I think the matrix of it all, like, you know, like if everything went in slow motion and the bullet whizzed past Keanu Reeves, like that's kind of what we were doing. And we discovered that our team, me, Lynn, Alex and Tommy, we discovered that for ourselves when we did in the Heights about how you can change speeds in a stage picture and filmically investigate a character's point of view by having another person go fast next to another person who's going slow. I mean, that's what the camera does. And so as we made this transition into the film world, which Tommy does a lot more than me, the breaking apart of these iconic dance numbers and scenes was like us playing in a tremendous playground. What has the process been like for you in your own work of transitioning from stage to working for film and television and kind of moving the choreography from the stage to like the screen to a filmed version. I mean, in some ways, that's the same transition that Bob Bossy went through. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I know about myself and Tommy knows about me is that I'm tremendously detail-oriented. When I put something on stage, like for example, I don't let the cast dance in unison very often. Like I break up the steps into variations. So all over the stage, there's movement happening. Things are being chiseled out, but everybody's doing it in their own unique ways that doesn't lend itself to repetition. So doing a Broadway musical that's all about detail is a little hard. So I always knew, and and Tommy knew about me, that to be able to lock the camera on something and preserve it and freeze it in time kind of is good for my skill set. Also, I'm about the idea and the story, just like the rest of Tommy and the writing team is. And so I think we on stage we're always trying to get as close as we could to the story. Like Tommy would say at Hamilton when we first opened, how can we get the words as close to the audience as possible? So we were never being immersive in our presentation of Hamilton, but I wanted it to feel like the show was happening around us as an audience member. And that is a filmic device. I mean, the camera can be right in the middle of your story and go 360. It can go into somebody's head. It can be their point of view. That's all really exciting to me. And it puts the pressure on the choreographic idea or the staging idea being as honest as possible. And if you confess up to that, your work is going to be good. If your staging idea is not honest, when that camera gets close, it's going to show that you're faking. It's going to show that it's not real life that you're portraying. And then there's just the nuts and bolts. I mean, TV and film has a different kind of a timetable. You hurry up and wait. You have to do a lot on the fly knowing that the camera is about to roll and then it's going to be preserved forever. 
you know, in a Broadway show, you can rehearse for weeks and weeks and weeks and preview for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then even after the show is open, you can like an oil painting, go back in and deepen a color or lighten a color. So film is a little intimidating that way. But, you know, one of the glories of a project like Fosse is that everybody wanted to do it. And so when we cast the show, our final callback for the Fosse Verdon series was the most inspiring room of dance that I had ever been in. Like it was the best dancers in L.A. and New York. They all came together. The dance audition was tremendous. And I was lucky enough that those people got to be in the show. And so when we did like Big Spender or Mine Hair those dancers were just so, so tremendous. And then you can say, can you do this this way? Can you do this that way? And they can always go further than you think that you could possibly imagine. And then one of my favorite scenes in the series is in the second episode, the very first time that Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon meet each other. And it's set in a rehearsal room. They're kind of going over a, a number, but they're also kind of feeling each other out. It's a little bit of a meet cute scene. A scene like that that combines dialogue and story with a little bit of choreography, but it's not really a number necessarily. Is it challenging for you that there's not more choreography in a scene like that? Like, what is a scene like that like for you? That was actually a really difficult scene. One, because both actors and the writers all knew that the moment was vital, like the meeting of these two iconic people. I mean, that's an intense moment layered with so much information that is all emotional. So it was an important scene to get right. It was an important scene for the characters to feel each other out in a way that was honest. And so to layer in any movement is really difficult. And Sam and Michelle weren't lifelong dancers. They move really well, but they were learning to be these characters, both in character and in physicality. And so they haven't done the same dance step 10,000 times over their life. Like I've stood at the ballet bar thousands and thousands and thousands of times and rolled out my feet to start warming up. So I can have a conversation to you about my son's math scores and do that at the same time. But that's only because I've done it tens of thousands of times. And so it was really difficult and wonderfully challenging to try to let them be characters who dance and are emotional at the same time. So I think if it was more dancing, it would have been even more difficult because we needed to instill so much honesty in that scene. And we took our time with that scene. I was so impressed with Tommy the entire series. I mean, Tommy killed the show, Tommy Kale. But even in that scene, how he can go in with a scalpel and detail the work Nicole Fossey was saying on that scene, Sam said, where would Bob put out his cigarette? And she said he always had a, a metal coffee can. And so he would put a cigarette out in the coffee can on the chair unless he had a good idea. If he had a good idea, he would drop it literally where he was standing and just keep dancing. And so just that little tidbit of information like colored that moment. And then there's a moment in that scene now where he crosses the room and puts the cigarette in a coffee can. And so layering the moments with those scalpel-like details was really exciting. But at the same time, is there something just kind of fanishly exciting for you about getting to recreate something like say, the Who's Got the Pain number, which is one of Gwen Verdon's most famous dance numbers? Is it just exciting to get to sort of like take a stab at that and recreate it? Oh, well, every one of them. At first, when I when we started brainstorming the project several years ago, you know, I put down a list of all the dance numbers and they were mind boggling. And a lot of them I got to do, like, for example, I was a part of a group who did Who's Got the Pain with Gwen Verdon in the workshop of Fosse 20 years, um, aging myself 20 something years ago. 
And we ended up not doing the number in the show, but I got to learn the choreography. And to me, that was part of my education with both the show Fosse, this TV series Fosse, and just like, for example, the YouTube world now, is you get to dive into these amazing things that happened, some of which make the cut and some of which don't make the cut. In this show, even the research process of looking at any footage I can find of the movie musicals that they were in, in the stage shows that they did, in spin-off pieces of choreography like on the Ed Sullivan show, every one of them was exciting. And what I loved to do as a young dancer, and I still do now, I did this in the prep of the show, is just YouTube like an Ed Sullivan video and try to teach myself 30 seconds of that dance that Gwen and Bob do on the TV show. You know, that's like going back in time and seeing the greats do their greatest work. So you hit it right on the head when something like Who's Got the Pain is so robust and so fun. And here's a bit of that scene where Bob Fosse is choreographing Damn Yankees number Who's Got the Pain. Now play it again. Uh, from the same place? From the top, money. Who's got the pain when they do the mambo? Who's got the pain when they go up? But they the want fun. It is fun. Listen. It's a song about pain. Bobby, listen to the lyrics. They're not gonna hear that. They're not gonna hear anything. They'll be too busy looking at you. You'll be smiling so wide. You'll be dancing so magnificently. I think it's a musical. But you'll know. And I'll know. That's what we do, though, isn't it? We take what hurts and we turn it into a big gag. And we're singing and we're dancing. The audience, they're yucking it up. They're laughing so hard. They don't realize that all they're laughing at is a person in agony. A person who's peeled off his own skin. What would you hope that people kind of take away from the series of Fussy Verdon? What do you think this will do for the legacies of Bob and Gwen? Well, I think it does a couple things. I think it, it continues to educate people. It continues to show how influential and iconic Bob and Gwen's work was about how it changed art and continues to change art. But also, I think it's a great lesson in how art can heal the soul or at least the exercise of analysis is necessary in fixing broken problems. Bob and Gwen both were dealing with dysfunctions from early in life that really impacted them. And Bob unapologetically dove into his dysfunctions and analyzed it in his work. That doesn't excuse behavior. That doesn't solve his problems necessarily. Maybe it helped at times, but it illuminated the cracks in foundations. And those illuminations get passed forward. They can help other people learn in a different way, or it can inspire people. I can tell a story in choreography about being wounded or being really tense about something. And I learned those things from Bob Fosse because of the postures that he put dancers in that might have been his personification of how wounded he felt or how scared. Like you saw in episode two when Sam does the great monologue about who's got the pain and how he's hurting so deeply inside as an artist because he can't get the moment right. So he's going to choreograph something that the audience is going to laugh at, but there's a secret Easter egg in there that really what it's about is something else. And so Bob uses pain, even though the message ends up being comedy. That, I think, is an important message to put out into the world. Because in today's climate also, it's important to find generosity and find healing. 
And some of us do that through woodwork. Some of us do that through psychotherapy. Some of us do that through teaching. Some of us do that through running on the treadmill for two hours. But I think it's important to find those outlets that help you find your way. Congratulations on on Fussy Verdon. I think it's just such an exciting show. And I'm hoping that people, you know, watch and really enjoy it. Thanks so much. I think it's going to be a great education for people. Andy Blankenbuehler, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Be well. And that's it for this week's episode of The Real. For LA Times Studios, I'm Mark Olson. You can find me on Twitter at IndieFocus. And this week's show was produced by Katie Cooper and edited by Mike Heflin. 